Konnichiwa! And howdy, y'all! I'm Leslie. And I'm Laurie. And welcome to Sumo, sumo Kaboom! Where we talk about all things sumo. Yeah, and we're really excited this week because we have an interview for you this week with Murray Johnson. The Murray Johnson. Yes, if you don't know who he is... You've been just, under a rock. Well, just wait a few minutes. We'll tell you who he is. <laughs> but yeah, I bet most of you know who he is. Or you know his voice. Yes, you do. But before we get there, let me just say in last week's Halloween episode, we did not include a 15-minute section that we recorded at the same time because it was really scary. And, and I mean, it's dark. I mean, it was, it was very it's dark. based in truth. Yeah. And, and, it, and it is it, truth. It's awful. <laughs> it, but it didn't fit with the rest of the theme of the episode at all. So what we did is we packaged it up and we gave it to our donors and our supporters. So if you're in the mood for a true sumo crime story, you can always become a donor and our coffee account and you can get access and listen to that kind of scary sumo related story. Yes. And thank you for donating and supporting us. You have no idea how beneficial that is for us and keeping us going all year round. Shall we jump into a newsflash? Yes, please. Yes, please. Well, this comes straight from John Gunning, his article recently about this television show that's coming to Disney Plus and is actually out right now. October 26th, it debuted. It's called In English, Sumo Do, Sumo Don't. Now, this is a new series based on the hit movie from like, I think 1992 called Shiko Funjata. And this was a majorly successful movie in Japan. And in 1992, won like the equivalent of like the Academy Awards in Japan. It was a really big deal. But hey, y'all, there's some more sumo content for you out there. So if you're interested, just get on Disney Plus and watch this series. So I have no idea what it's about. I think it's also loosely based on the original movie, but uh, we'll all find out together if you've never heard of Shiko Funjata. It's kind of a sumo-related hocus-pocus thing. (laughs) Give it a watch. Let us know what you think. Now on to another bit of news that I think I missed last week, but I just wanted to bring it to light. You know, Shodai had had his uh, Ozeki promotion party finally, and I saw a picture of him holding two radishes and I just wanted to unpack that a little bit. Did you know that there is wait, a... Wait, 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 wait. Big radishes? Yeah, a daikon. Ra- oh, like a daikon. Two Huge. enormous daikons. Okay. And I wanted to know what that was. Did you know that there's such a thing called a daikon dance? No, what is a okay. daikon dance? Well, it's kind of like a ceremonial dance. With your daikons? Yes. And apparently, uh, once I looked at him with the two daikons in his hands, like doing a dance, I was like... What the hell is this? And then I found a whole bunch of other wrestlers all doing the daikon radish dance. All dancing with their own daikons? Yes. (laughs) And this is... Okay, so from what I understand, if you go to an agricultural college, upon entering college, it's kind of like the Japanese version of like a fight song or like a traditional thing that comes from your school. And if you come from an agricultural school, college, then you learn this as... Daikon dance. Yeah, a daikon dance. And they do this. It's for fun. It is, it's a good luck kind of thing. And it's it's supposed to kind of appeal to people's hearts in every situation. It encourages you to be sharp and not sluggish. If you also don't have two enormous daikon radishes, you can do it with beer bottles. So if you see somebody dancing with two beer bottles, you're like, chances are... They were doing the daikon dance. So there you have it. You can look it up and see. But it's called the daikon odori. 
please, <laughs> if anyone has video of this, Odori, I'm sure all you have to no do Dori, all you please. have to do is like look online for it, and you'll probably see it. But I thought if any of you had questions when you saw some of the pictures, I would let you know that it's the Nikon dance. Hmm. Now there's a Jurio wrestler, Asano Waka is his name, and this is interesting because. To me, it's like they're transitioning into kind of a new approach to people who get COVID. So he got COVID in the last tournament and he really suffered poorly. Like he just, other people kind of get over it in four or five days. He didn't. He was really knocked out. And he was in the fifth Jurio spot, I've, East or West, I can't remember. But he got bumped to the fourth Makushita spot for not showing up for that tournament. Hmm. And in the past, everyone's been bumped one spot you know, they kind of or put they them on hold or they kept their spot. So this is kind of an interesting thing, a little harsh, if you don't mind me saying. Did he but show up and wrestle? No, because he was he just was out with COVID. Mm. So it's interesting. It's kind of kind of make me wonder how I guess they're going to treat COVID like any illness, like any sickness from here on out. They're changing it's, the rules. It seems it seems because Ooh. if they did that with him, that was that's a huge drop. You know, mm -hmm. back to the non-paying ranks, mm -hmm. like, whoa. So hopefully he can get back up there. But still, you know, he was out for a long time and had to let his body heal. And so anyway. Oh, well, Bonzuke is out. There are lots of new promotions. Um, Tobizaru got up to Sanyaku. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Mm -hmm. There was some new, uh, was it a Tommy Fuji is mm -hmm. up? He's a newbie. And as as far as Tom uh, Toby Zaru said about being in Sanyaku now, he said it was like, uh, I don't know, it's been like 46 tournaments to get from reading his name with a magnifying glass to Sanyaku. And so he said he used Daesho as inspiration for himself and motivation because he was always doing a little bit better than him. And um, he says he's bulking up. He's hoping again to, I mentioned this last week, to become the flying gorilla, not the flying monkey anymore. Mm -hmm. And he's got a little bit to go, but he plans on bulking up, not by eating, but by muscle, I think. And so I don't know, it's pretty exciting for him but uh what else did you notice uh, notice about the bonsuke well just the sanyaku's in that pyramid they call it the pyramid sanyaku yeah. one yogazuna two ozeki three sekiwaki and four komasubi right now if you're new to sumo and you understood none of that don't worry about it no. it's, it's just that the top ranks are in a pyramid shape and that's kind of unusual mm -hmm. having four well tamawashi became a komasubi again. yeah 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 I, yeah, I'm just really excited to see how it all works out and to see how Takayasu does at M1. I'm looking forward to, I think I think it means we're going to have to do a spotlight on Tobizaru yeah. and Atami Fuji yeah. next week since they're both new to their highest ranks. Yes. So I am really looking forward to doing some research on them Yeah. and uh, lots more heart pictures of Toby Zaru with his hands on his head like a heart. I am looking forward to that. Yes. What I'm hoping for is like at some point on the JSA website, they'll have a picture of him like that with that heart thing over his head rather than a very serious photo of him. Yeah, because they prefer him with the, the cutesy heart thing. Oh, don't we all? Also, another uh, tidbit of info from the Bonsuke reveal is Asanoyama is sitting at fourth on the east side, Makushita. For November. Oh, yes. He did not make it up. No, we knew he wasn't going to because he, he lost, lost that one. one. But that means unless he craps the bed, <laughs> we'll finally he'll, see him in Jurio next time around. But um, that's about all I've got. Shall we launch into our main segment, which is Murray Johnson? Yeah. 
If you watch your sumo on NHK World, I should say your English sumo on NHK World, you already know the voice of our guest today, Murray Johnson. He is the Australian man who commentates sumo. He also commentates horse racing in Japan. So if you're a horse racing fan, you also know him from that. He is a former radio newsman. He called various sports in Australia. And he moved to Japan in 1991. He didn't move for this reason, but once he got to Japan, he was asked to commentate sumo. Initially, he said, no way, no way. I don't know anything about it. Let me learn about it. So he did. He learned a lot about the sport and its history, and he eventually started commentating sumo in 1996. His voice is the voice, like when we, when I, I should just speak of myself. When I first started watching sumo, I always listened to his pronunciation of Japanese words. Mm. So my Japanese kind of has an Australian accent (laughs) based on Murray Johnson. I didn't tell him that, but that is how it has worked out in our house. Yeah. So we asked you guys if you had any questions. We Again, we went to our donors and our sponsors and said, hey, we're talking to Murray. Please give us questions. We got a lot of questions back. We had 25 questions for Murray yeah. Johnson. And I think we only everybody had him. loves Murray. Oh, I they think do. they really respect his opinion. And he's a straight shooter, like a great analysis, yep. great critique. It's spot on. He's just not afraid to... Uh, say his opinion and his opinion to me is so valued because it's just straightforward and honest to the core. I was fascinated and just drawn in by him, everything he had to say. And uh, and you'll hear it goes pretty fast. We only had Murray for half an hour. He's a very busy man. So we just snagged him in between <laughs> things. And I tried to get as many of your questions in as possible. I did not get through all 25, but I got close. Yes, and you did I, a great job. I think you'll still really enjoy this interview. First of all, thank you. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time at Sumo Kaboom. And uh, I'm Laurie. And Leslie, who is my sister, says hello. She's very sorry she cannot be here today. She's very upset that she's missing this. But so it is. Sometimes work gets in the way. Okay. How in the world did you learn enough about sumo to become the sumo commentator in 1996? Yeah, the story is enough. I had a sporting background in Australia covering such sports as Australian football, cricket, golf. So I came with those on my resume, but most of my career, I was basically an on-air radio jock, TV presenter for a while in the news department. So anyway, cut a long story short, I said, well, I know nothing about sumo. Uh, I need to go away and uh, learn a bit about this unknown sport to me. So... Two years later, in 94, they approached me again and said, are you ready to join the team? And I said, definitely not. I don't feel comfortable about going on the air and sounding like a, uh, a non-professional, which is how I'd always approach any, everything else I'd done. Uh, so uh, 96, they approached me again in the middle of the year of 96, and I joined September 96. So in those intervening years... Did you go to practices? How did you learn about the sport? I wasn't allowed to go to practices because I wasn't a part of the team. Uh, but I basically just read up as much as I could and watched as much sumo as I could on the Japanese broadcast and also tuned in to the English one, which I found a little bit difficult to watch. But uh, because in those days, remember, they were, they were, they were using IBM reams of paper 
one of the guys that was a part of the three-man team, he just had reams and reams of, of printouts uh, about data. And that's how he, well, that's what he relied on on air live because they oh. did the full 15 days, the three of them. Okay. So, so for them, a very financial win, but they did sound like they didn't know their way around, uh, around the room because one of them was a sports jock. The other guy was the sumo aficionado and the guy with all the reams of information. He was, uh, I think potentially, uh, wanted to get into sports commentary. And I think he did. Maybe he ended up in finance, I think, in Singapore. But anyway, yeah, I, I didn't feel comfortable the way they presented, but it was interesting. But I, you know, I vote, I'm basically an announcer. That's all I am. And uh, when the opportunity came up, I took it on because in those days we had a guest. We had simultaneous people in the booth. We had a couple of directors. So, you know, there were at least, and there was a floor floor person as well. So we had, at least four in the studio, and now there's one, mostly. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So you have called horse races, and you've commentated for lots of other sports, as you said. How does your style of commentary differ depending on the sport? Uh, well, that's a very good question. They are all very different. Yeah. The, the horse racing, I tend, my voice goes up about 16 octaves, I think, when I get excited. So... <laughs> When they get close I, I, to the finish line, right? Uh, well, not always just that. It depends on the race. But, yeah, and, and, that, and that's another thing. I'm also a horse race, a, a caller who's basically, basically an announcer. Uh, I was paid a compliment once by a very good friend of mine who at that time was regarded as one of the best in the world at horse race calling. And he said, as a horse racing commentator, he's the best sumo commentator I know. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> a back a backhanded slap, but uh, I developed my own style to the extent that I didn't want to be purely Australian. I didn't want to be British. I certainly don't have the American style. It's a very different style to, to mine. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do, I, you know, I've had an interest in horse racing since I was a kid and had association with horses. So I used to go to the races a lot as a kid. And when the opportunity came up to do that job, uh, it was a bit, that's another long story, but um, I took it on with a, a fair amount of trepidation because my first race call was the Japan Cup. Oh, wow. And uh, so, you know, you had millions of people watching. And in those days, it was kind of the height of of the international interest in Japanese racing. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it was a nerve-wracking experience. I didn't sleep for three days before the race, but uh, oh, anyway. Oh, my God. Wow. So what makes really good sumo play-by-play -play commentary, in your opinion? Um, it's television. So I I try not to state the obvious. Yeah. And I think I think some people do. And sometimes I fall into the trap, but I like to preempt what I think is going to happen. Or uh, I work on the style of the Rickshie who are competing or the styles and which one I think will take the advantage. And after you watch them, you know, numerous times, I, I tend to, to study their movements, feet and upper body, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to their opponent they're, they're against. And in some ways I try to predict the outcome without sounding like a jerk. Uh, a lot of people don't like that style because it sounds a bit, not arrogant, but I like to suggest that if that guy gets that, that grip, he probably should win the bout. 
Yeah. So I, I, I tend to analyze the bout as it's happening and yet try to make it sound like I'm not, if that as, makes sense. Yeah, it does. And as a viewer, I find it very helpful when I hear you say things like, oh, that grip should favor so-and-so. That teaches me a lot about how the sumo is being done. Yeah, the people who've been watching it for a long time don't like it because, mm. you know, they have their own opinion judged on years of, of watching sumo. And I, I you know in this world of social media and, and Twitter and all the things that you have to put up with online, you know, I've received quite a few barbs about that, but it, it's not going to change what I do. Good. I'm very <laughs> glad. <laughs> it is what it is. Okay. We have some listeners who have dreams of becoming sports commentators. What would be your advice to them? Well, sports commentary, we, we would love to have some people from overseas move to Japan and think about becoming sumo commentators because nice. the, you know, I'm uh, interesting that we're doing this around Halloween because I thought I'd be on that program, something, you know, crusty and scary, but the, they need to have a passion for learning about what they're, what they're doing, not mm -hmm. just, you asked a good question earlier about, you know, how do you approach each sport? They're all, they're all different. You can't be a baseball commentator and, and also a, you know, a horse racing commentator at the same time. They're two different styles. They're two different formats. And the same, same with sumo that we, we had a guy back in the day called Dave Wiggins, an American guy who uh, was on the sumo for probably, I'm going to say 10 years, maybe, maybe eight. Mm -hmm. And he had the, he copied a lot of American uh, sports, you know, Howard Cosell, those, those kind of guys. Oh, okay. And he had a lot of, he had a lot of cliched, you know, like hooly dooly and holy, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, you know, get out the maple syrup mar, it's pancake time, all that sort of stuff. So all his bouts were full of the same little idioms and, and, and cliches, but that was his style. And, you know, he was very, what I would call American sports commentator with Stumo. It, it sounded a little bit like the WWE, but you know, he was enjoyable to listen to. And he had, he had a 50, 50 fan base, 50 loved him, 50 hated him. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other end of the scale, people who are probably a little bit more laid back like I am until the crunch comes along. And as I said earlier, it's television. So don't over commentate. I believe some of the people we have at the moment commentate and it's like it's radio. Uh, they just can't shut up. I won't say who, but uh, they they need to realize that you don't need to talk all the time. But your question was about how do you get into sports commentary? Well, I say every sport is different. Analyze what you think your style is or what you want it to be and go with it. If you copy one person in particular, I think that's not good. Maybe you take a little bit of everybody and 50% of yourself and steal from others. And then you will eventually shape your own style. I love it. Okay. The best part of your job, what is it? Uh, doing the live show is is interesting to the point now that we are analysts and play-by-play. -play. So in the days when we had a guest in the studio before COVID, we would rely on them to review the bout and say what happened. And invariably, they some of them are quite good at it. Some of them weren't. Uh, so the fact that we lost them is, to me, not a big deal. But getting to do both... You've got to be able to make sure that when you do the live bout, don't overanalyze it to the extent that you've got nothing to say at the end when Ooh. you're doing the slow-mo replay. So there may be elements that you've missed, and that's what you seize on in, in the replay. 
you 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 combine that with your initial live analysis with a, an extended view in the result. As you know, sumo, some of them don't last that long anyway. So right. <laughs> one of the sports you don't have to overanalyze. <laughs> okay, this is a personal question. What is mm. your favorite food? Oh, yeah. Well, moving to Japan, you I think you tend to change what what your favorite food is. Um, that's a very good question. What I like to eat and what I can here, but when you've got kids who don't like spicy food, um, <laughs> the, uh, probably just a really nice seafood pasta. Oh, uh, you know, if if that I wanted to make myself and whip up in in ten minutes uh, or fifteen minutes, but yeah, I, I have no particular favorite. There are lots of things I don't like, but uh, a lot of Japanese food I, I don't like to eat, like uh, certain well. Certain Japanese foods like uh, natto, I'm not a big fan of natto, but I don't think I'm a foreigner that is exclusive in that area. <laughs> I don't uh, think so. I, I like a bit of a kick. I worked in Malaysia for a while, and uh, that certainly awakened my senses because some of the foods there are so hot. You know, you, you need to you need a respirator whilst you're eating it. But uh, <laughs> uh, general generally, I'm. I, yeah, I'm not not particularly. My wife might disagree, but I don't think I'm particularly fussy. Okay, okay. What do you do in your spare time? Yeah, I was having the same conversation with my wife yesterday. Neither of us have a hobby hobby anymore. What? Not, well, does that mean you live your hobbies? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a beautiful I, way to live then. Well, it is because I think I'm lucky because being an announcer, a freelance announcer, if you don't enjoy it, I mean, there's something wrong because you get the opportunity to do so many different things. And I've been quite fortunate with that. But, yeah, I used to play golf. I used to surf. Now I'm too old for both. Well, I'm not too old for golf. But uh, golf became, well, still is very expensive in Japan. And I don't have a big circle of friends because of my work regimen. And most of the people I associate with on the, the getting together for a meal and a drink would be the horse racing crew. And I'm not with them every weekend. And... Uh, so, yeah, I'm normally on the computer studying horse racing and or sumo and or preparing for something else in relation to work-related things like documentaries and uh, a few other things that I've got irons in the fire. So, yeah, uh, nothing anymore, unfortunately. Kind of boring. I think if I move back to Australia, it would be very different. But uh, in Japan, the opportunities don't exist for me to do what I like to do. Okay. If you lived in Australia, what would you do? I'd play golf more often. I'd rekindle my love for surfing, but uh, I'd probably be going back to the going to the longboards. Uh, I don't think my old body would handle the short boards anymore. I've, <laughs> I've got a few boards still in somewhere around the house, um, <laughs> and a set of golf clubs that I would have to uh, not use because I'm sure all the the heads would fly off as soon as they were pulled out of the bag because the <laughs> The uh, threading is probably that uh, degraded by now that one one whack off the tee and they'd uh, go with the ball. So, yeah, a new <laughs> set of clubs would be required. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned documentary. Are you voicing documentaries or are you producing, directing? What are you doing? Or can no, you talk basically, about it? No, I, I'm just a talking head. I produced some back in the day, but uh, especially in Japan, there is so much involvement from people from different quarters. It becomes a bit of a nightmare if you start putting your 
you know, 10 cents worth in. So no, mostly voice work. I, I'm doing less of that these days, but and the occasional commercial, which does pay very well here, but most companies now put their put their finances into IT and uh, developing different programs, and uh, as opposed to doing documentaries per se. So, uh, okay, this one. Uh, so we're finally to sumo related questions here. Okay. Uh, what is your view of Takakesho's Henka against Hokuto Fuji in the last tournament? Yeah, it's pretty soft. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm not a fan of Henka, but it's not illegal. That doesn't mean it's... I think it's allowable for guys that are in the ranks that it doesn't really affect the outcome of the tournament. It, it may sometimes, and it probably has on occasions. But if a Magashita 15 pulls a Henka on an Ozeki, uh, that's not going to worry me. But if an Ozeki pulls a Henka dying days of a tournament, you know, they say they just reacted naturally. Well, I don't think so. I mean, sometimes maybe, but yeah, just not a fan. I, I'm not a fan of top rankers doing henker. I mean, who was it? Hakuho when he beat uh, uh, you for a U show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. was that a full henker? Pretty much. Um, you know, it was a definitely a shift and hit as opposed to a hit and shift. So henkers are... I think they can be subjective in terms of how you look at them. I mean, Harama Fuji was known for the the Harama Fuji half henker, mm-hmm. uh, where he would take the shoulder but quickly get the left hand or right hand outside grip and win by a watanage. Uh, but they probably weren't actually full henkers. A henker is just getting out of the way to make sure your opponent loses. And yeah, Takakesha was right up there with that one. Not a fan. Okay. Uh, in a Basho earlier this year, this is a longer one, uh, you kept commentating kept commenting on how the wrestlers were now extending a hand to help other people onto the doyo and that it wasn't really done before, that the younger wrestlers seem to have started the trend. So what are the rules around rikishi behavior or code of conduct on and off the doyo, and how did they develop? Well, you know what Damayoshi is, and that is the basically the the slamming of a guy at the edge off the dojo when he's obviously already out. And, you know, Hakuho has been probably one of the biggest users of that in recent times. Uh, there is, there is no rule. There is no guiding light about what they're supposed to do in actual fact earlier on. And you'll, you'll still see it from some of the, the guys who are what you would call traditionalists in sumo. They won't take the hand. They'll say, no, 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 I'm fine. Uh, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll wipe it away. So in the hair when they're doing Keiko, there is none of that. You know, you wouldn't help someone up in Keiko. Oh, uh, really? You, once, you're, once you're down, you get up yourself. I mean, you go to a full Keiko session to watch the uh, the young guys, or maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be a young one, but if a senior in a hair believes that one of his deshi, even if he's an ozeki or a sekiwake, needs a going over, uh, they will give him the full treatment until he's kicked and slapped and, uh, you know, come and they'll kick him in the ribs and say, come on, get up, get up, get up. And they just keep going and going and going. That's brutal practice sessions. And they'll do that with an up and comer that they think's got potential to do well. It's the, uh, you know, it's the, uh, the, uh, I don't know, call it soft love, but it's uh, the kind of sumo that you will see a lot if you go to practice sessions, which I don't do anymore. 
I, I did that for the first I don't know, 12 years and um, it was a, a learning experience, but you learnt how things are different inside the hair as opposed to being on the dojo during a tournament. Different usually. how? Yeah, how so? Well, the damayoshi is pretty much a constant in practice. Uh, you know, the, the the hard treatment, you know, it's brutal. These guys, uh, they're exhausted afterwards, and when they're exhausted, they, they give them more. Uh, so to see a young guy <laughs> for uh, 20 minutes just getting slammed and smacked and kicked and whacked and then he gets up covered in dirt and has to go again and until they're totally exhausted and they basically look at the clock and say, well, that's about enough. Yeah, so you can go there for three hours and you, know, you could get good long sessions of 20 minutes of one, one-on-one with an up-and-comer that they believe needs a bit of treatment. Oof. Did I answer that question about sure. the, yeah, there, yeah, there is yeah. no, there, there is no there is no protocol. Okay. The fan appreciation event that we just had. It seemed mm. to be attended by a lot of young fans. A lot of ladies were there. Is the mm. JSA still worried about sumo losing popularity? No, not at all. They're trying to do things, you know, they've introduced uh, this sumo prime time with yeah. Hero Monitor. The, I, th- I think that's the name of the show not that I you would know. Mm-hmm. But um I'm being facetious because that's all they do is tell you the name of the show. But uh, the idea being that they, some of the younger Oyakata who are directors believe that they, they need to do their own thing because normally advertising agencies are responsible for the promotion of the sport. And uh, some of the big ones right now are going through uh, major issues with the Olympics because of uh, bribes and all sorts of things that were handed out to agencies or agencies who paid representatives on the on the board of the Japan Olympic Committee oh. um, doing favours to sell merchandise and to sell clients uh, to get them as the major sponsors of the, the Japan Olympics. So that is a big issue with companies like Dentsu and Karakawa. And, so Dentsu was probably the major player with the Sumo Association and they still use them, I think, on certain programs but now that you have people like uh kisuno sato the former kisuno sato and mm-hmm. Hakuho, the two oyakata with bold ideas and ideas about taking sumo to younger people they were heavily involved with kimuriyama former kimuriyama in the promotion of that fan appreciation day the fan festival mm. you know huge success and and more successful than the previous ones they had i forget when the last one was Maybe 17 seven years, years. yeah. Oh, 15 years, was it? It's 17 had, with COVID, I, yeah. Yeah, they had a small one that they tried and it didn't really work because it wasn't very well organized. I think that was about seven years ago. It okay. didn't get much press. Uh, they limited the number of people because they were worried about, you know. Anyway, so this one was full on and uh, still not quite what they want to be, even though I think quite a few of the rules were broken about contact with with young kids and what have you, Takakesha, probably one of the biggest offenders. But, you know, it was a, it was quite touching. And the fans got to do things that I think many people from overseas would, would like to do. Well, I can tell you that um, all of the efforts that are being taken to reach English-speaking uh, sumo fans are widely appreciated. And one of the biggest questions we got over and over again was how far might these efforts go? Could there be a tour to North America in the future? Or how much more programming could there be? Or 
even, you know, could some ex Rikishi come on who could, who are fairly good at their English, come on and talk in some of the programs, like how much growth potential is there? Yeah, I'll answer the question is that there aren't many Rikishi whose English is good. So that's, that's a major issue. Okay. Uh, Konishki is now, I think, teaming up with the guy that did that uh, sumo and food thing. And mm-hmm. that was a disaster because that was a rip off the first series the guy mm. that was running it i don't i don't know if it's the same guy so i don't want to get too involved in that okay uh, but they're approaching it with a far more professional attitude none of the crew amongst that other than kanishki speak english very well now that's a that's a separate entity that has nothing to do with the sumo association nhk has the the rights for the broadcast and obama tv has their own package with the sumo association there was a rumor going around that they were going to expand it through obama tv i found that to be false Mm. Uh, i was actually approached to leave nhk and go and join an organization to do the full 15 days at every venue but but i that was kiboshed i was knocked on the head because they they, there's no way they could do it they couldn't afford to do it it's just Mm. out of their reach uh have to pay me a fortune no no the idea being that the idea being that they would have English coverage with someone on the spot. Now, that's not going to happen. Now, the other thing, NHK, NHK World, mm-hmm. expanded to four days of sumo, I think, uh, live for 50 minutes or whatever it is, uh, an hour and a half the last day. I, I don't believe that will go beyond that. Mm. Now, that's because, that's because of the programming divisions within NHK World business, finance, general news. They have their own programs that they want put on the air during that two-hour period that the sumo's on. Uh, so at the moment, I've been told it won't happen. Uh, that's unofficial. Uh, but I can tell you on the positive side, without giving you any information because I'm not allowed to, is that there will be a sumo tour coming up overseas. Fantastic. Uh, that'll be next year. Okay, that's huge. But I'm, but I'm not going to tell you where. Okay, don't tell me where. I, 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 can, I can tell you it's not the US. <laughs> oh, that's painful. Oh, that hurts twice as much. That only leaves, you know, like about 160 <laughs> other countries. Oh, you just had to get me excited for that and then tell me, no, not the U.S. <laughs> no, uh, I, I believe so. I, I believe it will not be the U.S. <laughs> okay. Well, then let's move on a little bit to uh, to some other types of questions here. Do stables use additional experts the way other pro sports teams do, such as nutritionists, kinesiologists, PT experts? Uh, some have. And some still do. Now, uh, let's see how many years ago. Seven years ago, there were nutritionists used at certain hair because they believed that just having chunko nabe was not necessarily a good idea. There have been studies done by uh, American university professors who've come here and done various studies on uh, BMI, uh, for a sumo stable, uh, sports psychology is an area that is also being used by some Rikshi, but that is their private and own choice. As you know, Hakuho had his team of uh, professionals in terms of 
his conditioning is mm-hmm. basically doctors. And he had three on his team. There had been other Rixi, Kotoshogiku used a sports psychologist. Uh, I asked Kisano Sato whether he used one when he went through his Cupid doll period, uh, sitting by the dojo with his strange little face. But uh, he said, no, that was all his own doing. But some of them, uh, Akebono in his time had uh, an, uh, an outsider that he used to spar with, who, huh. in from what I know, and this is unofficial, uh, ended up not being a good idea because uh, probably wasn't the right person to be doing the job. But, yeah, a lot of them go out of the way. And, of course, they use gyms. They go to gyms as soon as they yeah. finish Keiko. Yeah. They'll go and do a, a lot of hay are very much into the weights, doing weight training. Yes. And a lot of them have their own gyms within the hair, the bigger ones. But it's hair by hair. It's not a sumo kyokai uh, undertaking to tell them what to do because they're all separate entities within an organization. Okay. And is there a limit to how much change to traditional sumo training and hair life that an oyakata can do within their own stable? Oh, that's that's totally up to them. There's no such okay. uh, there's no such thing as say you have to to do this. But they all know it's the basics that you start with and then they develop beyond there. I, I think the irony is Koto Oshu, uh, pardon me, Koto Shoho. Oh, let's get his right name first. Uh, Koto Oshu, whether he's changing, with Naruto changing his training style to be more influenced by Western training methods. And of course, his hay has gone downhill since. So <laughs> they might be having a relook at, okay. at what happens there because everyone keeps getting injured. His idea mm. was that to introduce these to stop any injuries in the hair. And then they've had this run of injuries, which, you know, whether they're, whether it's coincidental, I don't know. But whether he, and I haven't heard any word that he's going to do a rethink, but, you know, one would suggest maybe he needs to. Okay. Gyoji training. Surely they mm-hmm. have some. Do you know what it is? No, they basically are told what they need to do and they go away and train on their own. They may make contact with a senior gyoji because there are normally, not always, but there are normally more than one in each stable. Most have two at, at different levels. It could be a Sanyaku gyoji and a, a Jonakuchi gyoji. So he will impart some uh, information to him. Uh, the announcing of the rikshi, the, the tone that they use, that is all their own. They just watch others and go away and practice on their own. There is no Gyoji coach. There is no, you know, head of the Gyoji department who gets everyone together and says, well, we, you need to do this and need to do that. The Oyakata will give them some advice if uh, he thinks he's getting it wrong in training. Okay. But invariably, they train on their own. They, don't, they can't, they, they will train when there's no one in the hair or when they're, you know, the guy's having a sleep in the afternoon or, or whatever it may be. So, no, there is no official coach, no official training method. That is That's why they've got. That's why vocally some of them have such different styles. And some of them sound pretty terrible, but uh, some of them sound really great. It's just they are what they are. And what else are they doing in the Haya? Managerial jobs. Okay. Quite often they're associated with uh, the ordering of food, uh, taking phone calls for the Oyakata, uh, acting as the, the office manager, uh, office managers. Uh, all sorts of roles are different. The go- the gopher, uh, you know, I need this, jump on your bike and go and get this, uh, depending on the age of the person, of course. But right, the, of course. The more, the more senior they get, the less bike riding they do. <laughs> the idea being that there's always something to do. Okay. A lot of questions around sumo school. 
And of course you did, I believe it was you that did the voicing of a Sumopedia episode about sumo school but more questions like could he tell us more like i've heard that there's a sex ed component to it does anyone ever fail sumo school and what are they wearing when they're going to sumo school what are those outfits that they wear things like that uh, well okay what they're wearing i'll answer that first they wear you've got the what, whatever they would wear outside they basically turn up uh straight from the hair uh, there is a, a designated room inside the koko uh they are especially the ones that come, come from overseas. There's that uh, designated period of three to six months where they have to learn uh, cultural uh, history of sumo. They have to learn technique. Uh, they have to learn, and there's a history element as well in, uh, and of course, language being the main one for them. It is a school. It's a sit-down class like you would uh, you would see in any other school, except the, the seats need to be a bit bigger, I think. But the... <laughs> Most of the kids or young people that first join sumo have to go through that training period so that when they step up on the dojo, they have some knowledge because in the past, some of the, especially the ones that came from overseas, they didn't have this mandatory period of, of uh, learning language or trying to learn the language before they started because they didn't understand what was going on. They, you know, they were even being to be told by the Gyoji to move left or right or go back behind the shikiri sand or they didn't understand. So that was introduced. The, the raw elements of sumo are taught in these classes. Uh, there are other elements to that question were? Yeah. Is is it a pass and fail? Does anyone ever fail? No. It's uh, Okay. It, it's maybe you should do something else. Uh, if, <laughs> you know, and, and quite often they'll leave before that decision is made for them. Okay. okay. They don't, you know, I mean, they don't, it's more about, the, the practice sessions, uh, getting beaten up and not realizing what they got themselves into. So, you know, you'll, you'll see Johnny Cucci guys or, you know, not last very long and the departures, you know, normally it's not on you. That's why we have so few young boys in sumo now, as we compared to what, when we had the 900 number, you know, yeah. when we're now closer to 600. So, yeah. Let me just jump to the last one. Mm. The Bonzuke is going to come out right before this interview goes on our podcast. So right. what wrestler in the top division is particularly exciting or interesting to you right now? Mm. Well, the interesting and exciting and potential are probably all different things. Mm -hmm. uh, Toby Zato, I think, is very good for sumo because of his uh, uniqueness, uh, the fact that he is not what you regard as a traditional sekitori. He shows his emotion, win or lose, uh, gets really pumped. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's not traditional in his sumo either, per se. He's probably getting a little more orthodox, but he's probably the most exciting one. How far he goes, I don't think it will be very far. I, I, I think Sanyaku will be his limit uh, and probably quite likely to be there this tournament, I would think. Yeah, he'll probably just creep into Komusubi, maybe. And, and, of course, you've already got the results, but I'm guessing. Um, Wakataka Kage, I think, is probably the one with the most potential. The only negative he has is his size. Now, the fact that he started so poorly in the previous tournament with three losses and then he won 11 out of the next uh, 12 bouts or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, hang on, there's only 12. Yeah, he won 11 of 12, right? So, and to finish 11-4 with three losses to start with at that rank, I think was exceptional. Uh, so he's got the got the grit 
and he's got the physique. He just uh, the, the musculature, and he's got the technique. He just hasn't got the size. Mm-hmm. So if he makes it to Ozeki, and I think he probably will, is that he might struggle to like they all do, to maintain that rank. I can't see him putting up constant big double digits. He, mm-hmm. you know, he might be a ten guy and occasionally get a twelve. I think he'll win one more youth show uh, in the not too distant future. It might even be the the one coming up. I would suggest he. I would suggest he and Tucker Casio are the the most likelies. With uh, you know the story about the Ozeki, Tucker Casio obviously is better than the other two. Well, the other one now, uh, and whether he's going to be one for much longer is also quite uh, quite doubtful that he maintains his rank. He's training very well, and his intense training has been displayed this time, but. It's all mental with him. It's not physical. Uh, so we we need another Ozeki. The Yokozuna will not compete. Mm-hmm. He'll be he'll be sidelined. And if that changes between now and when the Bunsuke comes out officially after this broadcast, after this airing, uh, it makes me look pretty stupid. But I, I don't think he'll compete, and I and I don't think he should. Uh, he yeah. has kind of got the grace of some of the Oyakata to say, well, you know, you need to take time off. And I think that will give him another full year that he could probably compete in the and try to get to his 10 wins. So getting back to answering your question in a roundabout way, the most exciting for me is Tobizaru. Uh, Wakataga Kage is potentially the next Ozeki. And whilst he has a long way to go and he's not putting up big numbers, Kiribayama. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. We had to cut off the interview a little bit early just because we lost uh, the connection. We talked about the thing that stumped him the most was what his favorite food was. (laughs) (laughs) You found that fascinating? You can tell he's used to talking about sports. He could talk about sumo and horse racing all day, but as soon as you go, what is it that you like to do in your free time and what kind of food do you like to eat? He's kind of like, oh. Oh, People don't ask me these things. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's good we had questions to ask because if we didn't, we probably would have been a far more awkward interview and just asked him all the personal things. We, yeah, we would have just fangirled out. Yeah. So again, thank you, Murray, for giving us so much of your time. And thank you, listeners, for your fantastic questions. We could not have done it without you either. That's right. Thanks for supporting us. Like, listen, and share our podcast if you can. And we will see you next week with our features on Tobizaru and Atami Fuji. Bye. Bye. Bye.